Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. So for those of you who haven't met, my name's Luke. Um, I'm here probably once a month or so, and it's always lovely to see you all. Uh, We're taking a big jump in the biblical story today. And so you might remember just two weeks ago, Rod was speaking about the book of Judges and how that was a time of real chaos and confusion in Israel, a pretty messy time. And you might remember that the book, the end of Judges ended with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, in our passages today, about 150 years or so have passed, and Samuel, as the prophet and priest of Israel, has anointed a king over Israel. So Saul became the first king, followed by King David, And now his son Solomon reigns over a strong and united kingdom. And then listen to this description in 1 Kings chapter 4. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Quite a contrast from Judges to this description in the book of Kings. And so in 150 years, Israel's become almost unrecognisable. What had been this fragmented collection of tribes had now united under the banner of a king. And we might view this period of Solomon's reign as the high point in Israel's history, where the nation almost seems to be on the brink of paradise. Some of those words that we read, I don't know if you noticed, but they were reminiscent of the promises made to Abraham. It was like those promises were coming true, almost as if a taste of Eden had been restored. But if we pay really close attention to the story of Solomon, and if we know the Torah well, we might be wary about being too optimistic. Because there's a thread of warning that weaves its way through Solomon's story that should just make us pause. So as we delve into this story a bit more, let me, let me pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways in which you've worked through history. We thank you for this story of Solomon that reveals to us your plan for kingship and points us to the one true king, our Lord Jesus. May your spirit be opening your word to us, enlightening us and moulding us more into your likeness. Amen. So Germany above all was a winning slogan. It was a slogan that aroused the pride of a nation and saw Adolf Hitler become the Fuhrer of Germany. And as Hitler's evil became increasingly evident over the years to come, the people and the institutions of Germany came to resemble Hitler's character and heart. 
One historian writes, most Germans accepted basic premises of the Nazi worldview. The distinction between friend and foe. The view that Germans had almost been destroyed at the end of World War I and the result that they would have to fight internal and then external enemies in order to ensure their survival. And the identification of the Jew as a non-German alien and even enemy. One of the things that our history teaches us is that the character and the heart of a leader really matters. Those in power shape and influence the identity and the future of a society. Their decisions have consequences that affect us all. And it's true at a more local scale too. Communities and workplaces and church cultures are significantly shaped for good and for bad by the character and heart of their leaders. And I'm sure you would have experienced this too, of of seeing communities ripped apart by bad leadership or by self-focused leaders, but also seeing leaders of good character bring healing and hope to communities. And the author of the Book of Kings emphasises this connection between a ruler's heart and the lives of their people. We'll just see if we can get this working. There should be another slideshow that has, um, there's a picture. No, it's not this slideshow. Don't worry about it, Paul. I think if it's not working, we'll just leave it. So the author of Kings makes this connection between a ruler's heart and the lives of the people they're ruling over and really emphasises that point. Because back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the whole nation of Israel, every single individual, as they're standing on the brink of the, the promised land, is told by Moses to turn their hearts to God in obedience so that the whole nation of Israel would flourish. Skip a couple forward. going uh, back one there good so they've spoken to every individual you uh, to obey the lord's commands that they might flourish but in the book of kings those same words they're not spoken to every individual in israel they're spoken directly to solomon as the king and so there's three times in chapters three six and nine where god speaks to solomon and says If you follow all my commands, then I will cause you and your kingdom to flourish. And so now that Israel lives under the banner of a king, their flourishing has become tied to his ability to guide them faithfully. Solomon is bound to Israel and Israel is bound to Solomon. And so this sets us up to pay really close attention to the details of Solomon's reign. Solomon's kingship is under the microscope. Will he be devoted to God? Will he lead the people of Israel in faithfulness or not? And the stakes are high. The story of Solomon, as well as we were reading through, you might have noticed it's it's masterfully written. Solomon's actions are described in great detail, but the author doesn't make any moral judgments about his actions at any point. 
It's left for, for us to try and work out whether he's being faithful or not. And all the way through Solomon's story, there's these snippets that make us think, wow, what an amazing king. But there's also many stories that should make us pause and think, hang on, this doesn't sound right. Something feels a bit off here. And I want to suggest that Solomon's intentionally presented as a morally ambiguous character whose heart is divided in love for God, but also in love for everything else. And so there's no question that Solomon does some amazing things for Israel. He's commended by God for seeking after wisdom. He brings peace to a nation that's been at war for centuries. He builds a magnificent temple to God and gives one of the most beautiful speeches in the Old Testament. He brings wealth and prosperity to Israel and generously shares that with other nations. He's described as ruling with justice and consistently offering sacrifices of worship to God. Israel seems to be promise, uh, prospering. God's name seems to be honoured. Great king, right? Next slide. But what are we to make of these little stories? In chapter 3, Solomon marries the daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt. And we find out later that Solomon receives many gifts from Pharaoh, including a city belonging to a people that he massacred, along with thousands of horses, which will be important a little bit later. Now, the author doesn't say that any of this is a bad thing, but doesn't it seem a little strange that Solomon would be making alliances with the Pharaoh of Egypt, who's previously enslaved Israel and was notorious for his cruelty and idolatry? Or what do we do with chapter 7? Nestled right in the middle of the description of Solomon building God's temple, where the author describes Solomon building his personal palace that is twice the size of God's house and takes twice as long to build. Again, Scripture doesn't accuse Solomon of wrongdoing, but what does it suggest about Solomon's heart and opinion of himself? And what about in chapter 9, where Solomon creates a massive force of slaves to build the temple and his palace, drawn from all the nations around them? Again, it's not described as being wrong, but it sounds awfully similar to the practices of Pharaoh, who was condemned for enslaving Israel. And then what about in chapter 10, where Solomon's wealth is described? Every year he was receiving 666 talents of gold, which is about 2,000 solid gold bricks. He had so much gold that he decided to make 500 solid gold shields just for decoration in his palace. He even had a zoo where he would import apes and peacocks. Surely we have to question this ridiculous use of wealth. And then what about Solomon's 700 wives from all around the world? What are we meant to think about that? Now, perhaps we could excuse all these things. Maybe we could argue that this was just a sign of Israel's prosperity. Maybe I'm reading too much into the text and trying too hard to find fault with Solomon. But here's the kicker. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's this short text that describes 
what the king of Israel is supposed to live like. It's written before there was a king, but in anticipation of the day when there would be a king in Israel. And listen to this description and compare it with what we've seen of Solomon. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. The author of Kings expects us to know the Torah and to know these words. And if we're familiar with these commands in Deuteronomy, then Solomon comes across as a very mixed character indeed. Solomon was a king whose heart was divided. He swayed between faithfulness and obscene pride, between wisdom and extravagance. And ultimately, his heart would turn away from God as the lure of wealth and pleasure overcame his love for God. Next slide. And so as Solomon drifts further down this path of pursuing pleasure, Israel becomes unsettled. Factions begin to emerge, vying for the throne and disrupting the peace of the people. We see Israel descend again into civil war as God anoints Jeroboam to be the new king and Solomon tries to kill him, a repeat of Saul and David. And in the years to come, Israel would split completely into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, each with their own king. And Israel as a nation would never be whole again. The nation of Israel begins to spiritually, socially, and even geographically resemble the divided heart of their king. And so the book of Kings, I think, is meant to be read as a book of anticipation. It shows how vital it is for God's people to be guided by someone who is wholeheartedly serving the living God and walking his ways. And throughout the remainder of the book, this bond between ruler and the people is explored further as the decline of Israelite society mirrors the decline in the king's ruling over them. And at the same time, as we read on, we're we're invited to be on a search for a king who will lead God's people into truth and justice and goodness. One who will be wholeheartedly for God and bring healing to a divided people. Next slide. Not that one. Should be one with a heart or something. That's the one. We often uh, talk about Jesus being king. We use that sort of language quite a lot. But what does that really mean? I wonder if it's become a bit of a cliche sometimes that we use. Jesus says in Matthew that one greater than Solomon is here. And when he says that, he's making the claim that the search for Israel's true king is over. The wholehearted, faithful king has come to forge a new kingdom whose life, whose whole life together mirrors the heart of God. 
Jesus has bound himself to us and we are bound to him. Like Israel, our identity and future and life together is dependent on the faithfulness of our king. But unlike Solomon, our king's faithfulness has already been proven. We aren't waiting for Jesus to slip up or for him to show his true colours. He isn't some Solomon whose heart is divided. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The greater than Solomon is here and he's come as a wholehearted king, moulding us into a people that mirror the heart of our God. So Israel became a divided nation under the rule of a divided king. But what happens to a kingdom when it's ruled by a wholehearted king? Well, the impact of Jesus' reign is in stark contrast to that of Solomon's. In the book of Acts, we see the beginnings of the new Israel as people from every tribe and nation and tongue are invited into God's kingdom to become a new family. And so the scarred histories of national enmity, the prejudice of ethnic divides, the social stigma of clean and unclean people is broken through as a diverse people begin to find unity and in the character and heart of their King Jesus. And so where Solomon's heart, divided heart brought civil war, Jesus' wholehearted faithfulness shapes us to be one with him and one with each other. And so it's as we gather together to worship our King. It's as we embrace being family and in creatively imagine how we live that out. It's as we welcome people on the fringes of our church family or on the fringes of society into our homes and to our table. It's as we celebrate the giftedness of each person here. As as people of different races and genders and ages and politics serve each other at the table of our King. It's as we do these things that we mirror the heart of our King. Our king is healing our divides and forging us into a family who wholeheartedly turns to our God and seeks his path. So I want to suggest four ways that we might respond to God's word today. Firstly, I think the book of Kings warns us to be realistic about our rulers. Humans are deeply flawed. Look at your own heart and see the divisions within. I have a divided heart. We all do. We are finite and we lack wisdom. We can't always see the consequences of our decisions. We must be realistic about those who lead us and at some level expect to be disappointed As people who sit securely in the care of King Jesus, knowing the world is in his hands, we we actually have a really unique place in the world, I think, to be a non-anxious presence when leaders disappoint us. The typical response in our society today to disappointment is to 
go into this impulsive, anxious venting on social media that really achieves nothing but inciting further rage and division. But we're children of the Prince of Peace and we're being equipped to listen and speak with wisdom, to offer an alternate vision of life, to seek goodness for our society, to to lobby and petition, to seek good for our world. But even when our leaders disappoint us, when they let us down, we are still called to offer hope and healing to those who are inevitably going to be rejected, impoverished and hurt when leadership goes wrong. I'm glad George came and spoke about refuge reimagined before because I think that's exactly the kind of space we're talking about here. People who are neglected, impoverished, rejected. How do we as a church speak into that space, offer healing and hope when leadership goes wrong? But secondly, as long with being realistic, we should be critically discerning about our rulers. One of the great tragedies in Germany during the Nazi regime was that the mainline church supported Hitler. They became so entranced by the promises Hitler made to give them freedom that they were willing to overlook his flaws and become complicit in evil. The church must never be blindly partisan to any ruler, party, organisation or movement except Jesus. Every leader and organisation, no matter how good we think their policies are, no matter how wooing their slogans might be or how charismatic they seem, is divided in heart. Their character will not bring the permanent renewal or healing or wholeness that we long for. Of course, this is only more complicated in our day of mass media where we're being shaped by many kings, many kings. These kings look like social media and YouTube, movies and Instagram, clickbait news titles and music videos. And our young people in particular are immersed in a world where the divided hearts of influence, internet influences and TikTok sensations are king forming their understanding of life and shaping the future of our society. These are the people shaping the future of our society. And one of the great challenges for the church is to wrestle with how to teach one another, but especially, I think, our young people who are growing up immersed in this world to critique what they hear and see. Because the mass media comes into us unfiltered and especially for young people who are still learning to discern what a tricky world it is to navigate. We need to be finding ways to teach our young people, to teach one another to be discerning disciples of Jesus who are able to call out the false stories that we hear each day and turn to the voice of the one true king who actually cares for what is best for us. And I think that conversation is one of the most important conversations for the church to be having today. And all of that means that thirdly, we must be prayerful too. 
prayerful for the hearts and characters of our leaders and institutions. Prayerful that God would give us wisdom as we seek to discern truth. Prayerful for one another and our young people as we seek to follow Jesus in a really complex and confusing world. The character and heart of these kings of our world will have a profound impact on our society. We should pray for wisdom and renewal and a turning of hearts towards the ways of Jesus for the good of all. And where the kings of our world fail us, we must pray for God's mercy and grace too. That he would stem the flood of consequences and division that might result. And we should pray that he would strengthen us to offer an alternate vision of a whole, unified kingdom of peace and goodness in the midst of a divided world. Finally, Scripture urges us to hear and heed the wholehearted king. Despite the tendency of Australians to undermine authority and the increasing wariness of people in power, we actually need leaders. Without leaders, anarchy is inevitable. And the book of Judges showed that in Israel's history, a leaderless Israel was directionless, divided and chaotic. Under the reign of Saul, David and then Solomon, Israel's society improved dramatically for a time. The problem wasn't the concept of kingship. It was the heart of the kings. And the whole history of Israel's kingdom anticipates not an end to kingship, but a forever king who will rule in humility and justice with his whole heart turned towards God. Jesus redeems kingship, redeems authority and leadership, redeems Israel. And so as people of the king, we don't need to be ashamed of being under a king. We can celebrate Jesus' kingship because our king is like no other. But we are called to know the character and heart of our king so that we might be shaped into his likeness together as a family. So what is the character and heart of our king? Well, consider our wholehearted king as he calls together a ragtag bunch of followers and forms them into brothers and sisters. People who should have been at war with one another. Hear his voice as he walks through the towns of Galilee, stopping to heal the poor, the lame and the forgotten. Heed his words as he calls people to love God and love their neighbour. Watch him as he withdraws in humility to be in the presence of his Father. Walk with him as he climbs the rocky streets of Jerusalem to the jeers of the crowd. Kneel before him as the King of Kings draws his last breath. Rejoice with him as our King rises from the grave and forges a new kingdom of every tribe, nation and tongue. 
marvel that our king continues to be present with us by his spirit shaping us and molding us according to his heart and character this is our king how different are his ways to the ways of the kings of our world may we continue to hear and heed our wholehearted king as he conquers our divisions and makes us one let me pray lord god we have all experienced leadership gone wrong maybe it's the leadership of others but we also know that our own hearts are divided and that we are torn between love for you and love for everything else there's a little bit of solomon in each of us and all that does lord is make us want to well make us anticipate and long for your good rule the reign of our king jesus and lord we look forward to the time where every knee will bow and tongue confess that you are lord where your kingdom of peace reigns lord we pray for our world we pray for the divisions we pray for healing we pray that people would turn to you as the one true king may you help us as a church family here to continue to learn what it means to mirror your heart as we love one another and as we love your world amen